As we each are well aware, our opportunity to, to read through the Scriptures this year, to read sections or portions of the Word of God, perhaps it'd be very appropriate to take the opportunity and say, even if you perhaps have gotten slightly behind, not at all a bad thing to, of course, continue to read along, to keep up with as nearly as, as possible with the features and facets of where we have come to be. As we noted this morning, that does bring us to a completion of some 242 chapters of the Bible as, as of yesterday. When you take a look at that, again, some of these opening remarks tell us a little over 20% of the total of the Word of God. As you know, a total of 1,189 chapters, both Old and New Testament together. And as we now have completed, as you can see, about this much, it gives us a feeling about the process of completion until the end of this year. You may well already keep in mind, though, that as we move toward that, in the New Testament at least, many of those books that follow the gospel accounts, especially after the book of Acts, the books are much briefer, the books are much shorter in terms of number of chapters. And so if you've looked at that listing, you'll know we race through many of those later books of the New Testament, but come this fall, that consideration will certainly be very much before us. The Old Testament marches onward tonight as we consider another lesson from the book of Numbers. We have just begun reading Deuteronomy, and so expect one of the lessons next Lord's Day morning to be drawn from the book of Deuteronomy. For tonight, the brass serpent is the matter before us. Take it from Numbers 21. You may notice some of the features on that slide before us. Isn't it interesting that this is one of those episodes that finds mention not only in a very memorable way here in the Old Testament, but we also find it mentioned twice in the New Testament from the lips of our Lord Himself in John chapter 3 and from the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, both of which were directed with special messages to hearken the people of the first century era back to the nature of what lessons could have been learned, should have been learned from this episode in Numbers 21. For that reason, tonight I would ask us to revisit the scene of Numbers 21 and then to use the remainder of the time to look at the features of that episode, extract some matters from it, and hopefully penetrate them into your, our lives in a very, very com uh, compelling way. You'll notice as we begin that, perhaps fair to look again at the lesson text. Brother Eddie read just a moment ago from verses 6 through 9 of Numbers 21. Here's an attempt to revisit some of the features surrounding that passage, the features surrounding that brass serpent, and to do so with a goal of understanding its contextual placement. Probably we're all aware that Numbers chapter 20, the chapter just before this one, was an exceedingly bleak and dark chapter in the history of ancient Israel. In that chapter we read about the death of Miriam, we also read about the death of Aaron, of course, as he ascended a mountain there. He ultimately gave the high priestly robes to his son Eleazar, but Aaron died. One of those gentlemen who had been such a powerful leader in Israel. However, that's not all we remember. In Numbers chapter 20, that also was that same chapter in which Moses disobeyed God. He had been given instructions to speak to that rock and to bring forth water out of it. And yet Moses, you may remember, struck the rock, not once but twice. And in so doing, God was very displeased with that activity. 
And even Moses was penalized by not being allowed to enter the promised land. Again, Numbers chapter 20, a very hard chapter. As we turn the page to what is Numbers chapter 21, you notice some rather amazing scenes, and in many ways the bleakness continues. You notice on this slide, the people journeyed. They left the previous placement in which they were, but they found that they had to compass or go around the Edomite land. That territory was off limits to them. Even though the children of Israel had asked the people of Edom if they could pass through the land, the Edomites abruptly and very powerfully said no. Even when Israel asked a second time, the answer was the same. In light of that, the people had to travel a much further distance to go around that land of Edom. You'll notice, though, verse number 4 says it like this. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. The people became very discouraged. They became very much unsettled and uneasy. The way was difficult. The traversal was hard. And as they traveled, verse number 5 now says, The people spake against God and also against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. We already, of course, have come a number of months from the very location of Mount Sinai. And as we have learned all these features, God has blessed them abundantly with manna. He has provided them abundantly with water out of rocks. On one occasion, we may remember in Exodus 17 that a tree was cast into some water and made it become sweet when in fact it had been bitter. We notice here the people in a very elevated fashion make this statement. We have no bread. We have no water. And we hate this, this manna, this light bread, that we, all that we seem to have. As the people make these kind of statements, it's easy to see a number of characteristics and traits about their reaction and about the placement in what they were feeling. You'll notice in light of that, God's reaction was swift and also exceedingly compelling. Verse number 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. The people's unthankfulness, their complaining, their disgust with both God and Moses was such that God dealt with this extremely quickly, and He sent fiery serpents among them. In fact, as you and I recognize these poisonous snakes, which is what that refers to, we have here a reference to God sent hordes, multitudes apparently, of these poisonous snakes among the people of Israel. As He did, notice He did so in response to their complaining and their murmuring one more time, and did so in response to the fact of their accusation both against God and Moses. You'll notice in verses 7 and following, the people come to their senses at least momentarily when they say, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. They recognized they actually had acted in a somewhat blasphemous fashion. They actually had accused God and Moses. 
And as they did this, they now besought Moses, pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. These poisonous snakes were wreaking havoc. You and I know how fearful we might be with respect to poisonous snakes. Suppose there were large numbers of them all around the camp. That's exactly the situation we have described before us. You'll notice as that verse ends, Moses prayed for the people. But the problem is many of them had already been bitten. Many of them had this poisonous venom coursing through their bodies. Verse 8 says, The Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. I'm sure each of us can visualize, at least imagine, the circumstance before us. The people of that day were certainly very talented. We've already learned how they were able to make the furnishings of the tabernacle. Here, something serpent-shaped was crafted out of brass, lifted up on a pole, and all those that were bitten, if they would only look upon the brass on the pole, they would be, they would be able to live. An amazing scene. And one that not only we find as a very powerful part of Numbers 21, as mentioned earlier, the New Testament will refer to it twice. And I always do so in a way to encourage us to learn valuable and lasting lessons from it. It is at this point we might now ask, what are some of the things that are so interestingly learnable from this? With that in mind, let's turn to look at a few scenes. As we look at these one by one, May I suggest to you that each of them will have, of course, an easy association to the, to the text we have just considered. But isn't it almost obvious that one of the first things that can well be mentioned is the powerful thrust in relation to God's decision on this, on this occasion. Here one more time, the people, those on whom God had lavished such blessings, those on whom He had watched with such protective care, those on whom He had made abundantly available all things needed for their sustenance, their livelihood, and their continuance. In fact, He was marching them toward a land of milk and honey. He, in fact, made promises to their forebears, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was a people whom He so dearly loved. And yet, they actually looked Him virtually in the face, spoke against Him, accused him of bringing them out here into a wilderness to die. Despite the fact he provided them with nourishment, they said, we don't have any bread or water. God took measures into his hands. And isn't it interesting what punishment he brought? God, in an act of judgment, brought poisonous snakes among the people. You'll notice God didn't turn just a blind eye in that old proverbial expression to what they had done. He brought an, est, an essence, an element of punishment upon them. It involved these fearful, poisonous snakes. As you'll notice, some of these comments, God sent these fiery serpents. Those fiery serpents remind us very swiftly about the judgment of God. Some might be quick to say, that's not fair. I thought God in His love and in His great graciousness was a God who would never do something like this. 
And yet we find that this is one episode among so many of which we read in the sacred text. God brought a flood of waters in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 and wiped out the entire human race but eight souls. Later in the Old Testament, we recall that these very people who had been brought out of the land of Egypt, they died before ever reaching the promised land because of their sin. Fair? Absolutely. God is always fair. We notice on this occasion, here were individuals. They had murmured and they had complained, and earlier God had often extended a great hand of mercy toward them, but now poisonous snakes in the camp. Our God often does those matters, and in His sovereignty He can do that which is His will. We observe on this occasion it was one in which many people were bitten. These poisonous snakes, and what a fearful thing it must have been. The Bible doesn't tell us what kind of snake it was, and thus it's fruitless to speculate. We know there are many in that Middle Eastern part of the world that are of the poisonous character. Whichever variety God chose to utilize, or if He miraculously sent forth His own, the point is still the same. God does not look upon sin in a favorable fashion. They had erred. They had sinned. They had spoken against Him. Today, might you and I think, then that same kind of matter should cause us to reflect as the day of judgment approaches. Is it right for God to cast some into eternal hell? Is it right for Him to turn upon them in such a fashion that they will have no longer any opportunity for salvation? Many in our world have long accused that kind of statement. God could never do that. That simply is not in harmony with the character of a loving God. But you and I know that all the while these individuals have been here, they've rejected His Son, they've rejected the only opportunity for salvation. Was that God's fault? You and I know that the characteristic here does remind us that our God does not look lightly at all upon sin. You'll notice the second thought that readily comes relates to the matter of what God chose on this occasion. We've noted that God made His decision in relation to punishment, and He could have chosen any number of things. He could have chosen disease or pestilence or an enemy camp coming with swords. But God chose poisonous snakes. How often in the sacred text do you and I read about serpents and the kind of havoc that they can wreak? Wasn't it in Genesis chapter 3 that it was the subtle serpent that came before Eve and after she and Adam partook? What a terrible thing was brought upon the human family. They chose to disobey, prompted by the temptation from the serpent. As you and I remember, we also read about the subtlety of the serpent in 2 Corinthians 11. It was there where Paul reminded the Corinthian congregation not to be given to that subtlety, but always to try and to test against the Word of God. You and I remember in addition that serpents frequently find a reference in other places. Surely, inasmuch as the devil took the form of that subtle serpent in Genesis chapter 3, we seemingly so easily associate the darkness and the evil of the devil with the concept of the serpent. As you and I do that, of course, we remember that we have a foolproof means of attacking that serpent. Look at some of these verses. The fear and the great sense of unsettledness that came with these serpents easily leads us to observe the following. 
it should be an exceedingly fearful thing to oppose the God of heaven. Isn't it true that on many occasions we seemingly live in a time when individuals seem not to fear God any longer? Many of them seem to take it so lightly to do that which is against His will. They seem to care so little about it. The whole duty of man is summed up in Ecclesiastes 12. Fear God and keep His commandments. The first part of that passage is one easy to overlook. What about that fear of God that should be an ever-present matter in the lives of everyone? Here, the children of Israel, it seems, didn't fear the Lord because they spoke against Him. After those poisonous snakes came in the group, then they recognized the error of their way. They pleaded with Moses to speak again to God on their behalf. You'll notice from the days of Genesis 3.15 onward, we, you and I have been promised for certain that that devil, that serpent in every form of evil, has been defeated by the greatness of the Son of God. In 1 John 3, verse 8, Isn't it true that those who sin do so by association with that which is evil? And then the comment is made, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. What a triumphant passage. And doesn't that remind us that only one chapter later, it is our faith that provides the victory that overcomes the world? It may be in light of that that the fairness leads us to that one final passage. In the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 12, in the midst of that chapter, verse number 11, we have a marvelous passage of triumph, a passage that goes like this. We remember just mentioned has been that serpent, the very one, of course, that is the devil himself, characterized as the dragon, the one who is the deceiver of the whole world, but in addition to being called that serpent and identified as such, the very next verse, verse number 11, points out to us that there is a certain way of overcoming him. It involves this, a reliance on the Word, a devotion to the blood of Christ, and being willing to die for his cause. That is to say, we love him more than we love our own life. That three-pronged certainty is more than the devil can ever defeat because it is an attachment to the very God of heaven and the power resident through Him. No wonder in light of that, notice lesson three. Isn't it interesting? It has been one of much discussion throughout the ages. Here a brass serpent was placed on a pole lifted up in the camp and the admonition was anyone who has been bitten, look upon that brass serpent and you'll live. Don't you suspect it true that everyone bit, no matter how sick he or she may have been, no matter the kind of pain or ailments that may have gone along with that venom coursing through their bodies, they were made in such a way they were brought to where they could look on that pole. After all, notice there was no other avenue presented. God did not say to pray for your salvation. He did not say to, in my, some means, make a monetary contribution to the tabernacle. He didn't say even request Aaron to come, or rather request the current priest Eleazar to come. The instructions were straightforward and very narrow, weren't they? Everyone bitten needed to look on that brass serpent. And as he or she did so, God's promise was, he or she shall live. Reflect on that in this way with me. 
that narrowness again may seem to be so distant from the kind of pluralism that the human family prefers. I'd like to do it my way. God said, you'll do it my way or it won't be done. To look on that brass serpent. Doesn't that so quickly and readily remind us of the uniqueness of even the New Testament era? Sin is the matter, of course, that you and I must have taken out of our lives. And yet, how is it done? God has been very plain, hasn't He? These specifics are very clear. There is a plan of salvation, and it doesn't matter what I or anyone else may think about that. It must be done that way. Acts 15.9, we remember a presentation in which there were some who previously had been Jews, others Gentiles, and yet each of them were told exactly the same thing. Isn't it amazing in light of that that there still are those who have a tendency to tamper with a plan of salvation because it isn't comfortable to them. Those gentlemen, those interesting people a few years back that said, I'll go to my grave before I'll be baptized. And some even had the nerve to say, I'll go to hell before I'll be baptized. Well, guess what? You're well on your way. God's plan of salvation, again, allows no alternatives to that point. We're not being overly fastidious. We're simply striving to be those who speak where the Lord has spoken. Jesus said, He that believeth that is baptized shall be saved. Didn't that so remarkably reminiscent to hear the God of heaven saying, If you look on the pole, anyone bitten shall live, looking upon that brass serpent. You and I lift high the lovely banner of baptism because the Lord did so. And we appreciate the simplicity of it. It is truly an incredibly meaningful moment. Isn't it amazing in light of that that we read, in addition, in that text that closes Luke's account in Luke 24. In Luke 24, we find, beginning in verse number 46, Thus it is written. Notice that as Jesus made that statement, It is written. He proceeded then to identify the critical matter of which He spoke. Thus it is written. That it, thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Notice He said, among all nations. You and I can't even claim that those in Cuba or China or elsewhere, maybe they have a different plan of salvation. It isn't so. When Ron Gilbert comes to share with us about the work that's done in Africa and even other places... He reminds us about the simplicity of that plan and how that there it's taught just as it is here. Rather than a baptistry, they may baptize in a muddy creek, perhaps even a muddy pond, but they are immersing because that's what God said has to be done. The mechanism of salvation, again, impresses upon us that neither is there salvation in any other. Only in Christ is that to be found, and one in, enters Christ only in baptism, according to Galatians 3. You'll notice beyond that, we come then to consider this idea as well. This scene of this brass serpent, in addition to these other matters, also incredibly reminds us about the foolishness that often is the result of man's efforts. I say that very interestingly because this brass serpent that you and I have just read about, we find it mentioned explicitly in another occasion in the Old Testament. 
look at some of these features with me. On this particular scene, this brass serpent was again lifted up on a pole, just as God had commanded Moses. But as it was done so, think about the healing and think about the deliverance that was brought to all of those who looked upon it. Several years passed. By the time we reach 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, this same brass serpent was used for a different purpose. Apparently they had stored it amongst the relics as they made their journeys and then later came, of course, into the land of Canaan. But by the time we reach 2 Kings 18, they were worshiping it. It was amongst the other idols that the people were worshiping. And here was this very brass serpent made by the nature of the command of God for the salvation from snake bite. And yet, in 2 Kings 18, they were bowing before it and worshiping it. What folly and foolishness from the human family, from those that ought to have known better. May I suggest to you that notice what they were doing. They took that which God had expressly described and were using it for a different purpose. Not to cure snake bite and not even as a reminder of that, but using it for idolatry and using it in the very way that was an affront to the first two of the Ten Commandments. But yet, think about what many have tended to do today. Our Savior left, as we noted earlier, a very clear plan of salvation, a very clear description of the body, the church, a very clear description and presentation of the hope resident in those that are children of God. And yet, one by one, man on many occasions has changed them, altered their meeting, modified their character, taught many and sundry different things. Notice that God wasn't pleased with the events of 2 Kings 18. They were worshiping that, and notice that King Hezekiah on that occasion attempted to destroy all of the idolatrous activity, including this brazen serpent. May we never forget that those who tamper with the things of God are elevating themselves above Him, as if they know more than He. The man of sin of 2 Thessalonians 2 found himself in that predicament. Paul expressly said that the end of time will not come before the man of sin arrives. And Paul quickly pointed out he has in fact by the, your day and mine arrived. But God did say in that passage in verses 9 through 11, God will allow mankind to be deceived. You and I are left to make our own choices. If we choose to stray from the Word of God, to use that which He has taught and change it or modify it in some way, we are the ones that, of course, will sorely regret such a decision. In the very last page of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22, one last thing is asserted that those who change the words of this prophecy, those who tamper or in some way alter it, didn't God on that occasion promise that those who tamper it all take their names out of the book of life? What a sad reflection and what a sad occurrence. It may be in light of that we come so quickly to the last point, Jesus Christ. We each knew that we had to arrive there before the lesson was over. This brass serpent that has been such a critical part of our description based on Numbers 21, and yet in John chapter 3, Jesus referred to this very brass serpent. He referred to the scene surrounding it. And that scene went, of course, like this. Nicodemus had come to Jesus by night. 
He had come and in fact complimented and commended the Lord very highly. We know thou art a man come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Verses 2 and 3 of John chapter 3. And then in the verses that follow, Jesus rather abruptly told him, Except a man be born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus, of course, ultimately, as well as all the others present, and all of you and I since that time have learned much from a study of John chapter 3, but found right in the midst of it, beginning in verse 14, Jesus himself said, Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so all who look upon the Son and believe upon Him, they can be saved. Isn't that fantastic? You'll notice in that text is a rather amazing prescription that even Jesus there made a reference to the means by which He Himself would die. Notice the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. That phraseology is a key one affirming Jesus said He was going to be crucified. Even this early in His ministry, He too would be lifted up. And while there on the cross, we've noted as we did in the lesson this morning, those dark moments that surrounded it, where the Lord gave His life, shedding His blood for each of us. No wonder in light of that, you'll notice that just as Moses did lift up that serpent, so too the Lord was lifted up. Maybe as we build that thought a little more carefully, we can do so with, in ways and in words like these. You'll notice there that serpent was lifted up in the wilderness to make a cure or to save from snake bite. But on the other hand, we notice that Jesus was lifted up to save from sin. But each one was lifted up. That salvation to be seen from sin, doesn't it remind us so easily about that one lurking? Notice again the idea of the serpent. There it was the snake bite, that venom from a poisonous snake. And yet when the Lord was lifted up, He saves us from that poisonous spiritual venom, from that roaring lion that walks about seeking to devour us. Not only that, you'll appreciate with me that there there was salvation, deliverance from the throes of death. Anyone that looked upon that serpent, if he or she had been bitten, God said that they would live. And now you and I notice that those who look properly upon the Christ, seeking to do that which is His will, that person will be saved from sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, to those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, Romans 8 verse 1. And aren't we reminded about that deliverance that Jesus brought, even in John chapter 1? Even though there was darkness surrounding the ways of the world, Jesus brought light and immortality to life through the gospel. You'll notice in addition to that, you and I also are told that we must look upon Christ. And the wording is very interesting in Hebrews chapter 9, in the last verse of that chapter. So then... We're told in that nation about nature of Christ Himself and your service and mine as members of His body. So then Christ was born to, to bear the sins of many, and to them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Christ bore the sins of many. To those that look for Him, 
isn't it needful, isn't it essential, vitally so, to look for Him and to look upon Him with eyes fixed. Didn't Paul assert that to the Corinthians at 1 Corinthians 13? To have their gaze fixed upon the Christ and to recognize only in that way would their life be properly directed and guided. Perhaps another idea would be this one. The tragedy that some will not look. Revisit that scene again of the people that might have been bitten by one of those snakes. Suppose there was an individual. Here was one who had been bitten by one of these poisonous snakes. The pole with the brass serpent on it had been reared up. And perhaps a kinsman of that person. You need to look upon the brass serpent and you'll be okay. The gentleman responds, I think I'll be okay. I believe I'll find my own remedy. My grandmother has a particular setting. It's a very special, time-honored family tradition. I believe if I just take that concoction, all shall be well. What utter nonsense. What utter foolishness. A promised deliverance by virtue of, of this brass serpent, and yet you'd refuse it? Today, isn't it sad that so many refuse to look upon the Master? The plan of salvation is here. Oh, I think I'll just say the sinner's prayer. I think I'll just, in fact, rely upon what granddad and grandmother did. What they did's good enough for me. What utter sheer absurdity. The God of heaven is the one that has the word of salvation. It isn't your family or mine. The God of heaven is the one with His precious Son, Jesus Christ, that has provided the one and only means of salvation. And to refuse to look upon it, claiming some other alternative, it is just as foolish to try to look back upon those in that day of Numbers 21 to not to refusing to look upon the brass serpent. Maybe finally you'll notice the brass serpent, its whole purpose was to lead to the salvation of those who had been bitten by the snakes. You'll notice in the very next verses in John chapter 3, the ones immediately following the text before us, in verse number 16, we have that most famous golden text of the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then the next verse, verse 17, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The Son came, the Son was sent to save man. Not from snake bite, but from the wily serpent and the sin that so often clouds the way of the human family. That's the reason, of course, that the Son came. Tonight, as you and I have thought to this point about the brass serpent, isn't it amazing the number of comparisons and sometimes interesting contrasts that lead us to appreciate how wonderful is the fact that Jesus came in our simple, humble obedience to His way. It is true, though, that there might be one or more in this audience that would be in a position to where these lessons have prompted you to think about the following. I suspect that with these poisonous snakes and the fear that came with them, this was likely a scene they didn't soon forget in ancient Israel. Sadly, the lessons, though, were not permanent. They did again complain, and they did again look with unthankfulness to God. But consider the blessings of what lessons you and I have learned this evening. In the course of these studies, we've been reminded about God's judgment. He will judge sin harshly. 
He sent His Son to offer salvation to those that refuse it. There will be no mercy. In addition to the characteristic of that judgment, we've also appreciated one more time the great simplicity of God's plan of salvation and the mechanism that went with it. Our God has spoken and that's enough. We've also learned, of course, about the snake bite. And we've learned about the nature of how they, in foolishness, ultimately use that brass serpent for something else, idolatry. Man today tampers too with God's plan of salvation and shame on man for so doing. Finally, Jesus Christ is the central lesson. To preach Christ and Him crucified, that was Paul's aim in 1 Corinthians 2. And we've learned tonight that just as the serpent was lifted up, so too was the Christ. Have you looked upon Him? Have you sought to look with earnestness to the time of His second coming and to recognize your faithfulness will be blessed by eternity in heaven? If tonight things aren't well with your soul, why not make it so? That plan of salvation involves you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The Lord stated here in John three fourteen and 15 that that had to be done. In addition to that belief, there is the teaching about the necessity of repentance to turn aside from sin. There is, of course, in addition, that commandment to confess the name of Christ and then to be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to you in doing that, we'd be delighted to do it. If you have wandered from the pathway of faithfulness, notice again that the Christ has been lifted up. Why not look back again to Him who can take the sin from your life if you need to come forward tonight and ask for prayers, perhaps for sins known publicly, perhaps for greater strength and perseverance and endurance, we'd be also very happy to help. If we could be of assistance to you in any way tonight, may we use the brass serpent to remind us about the central teaching of the lifting up of the Christ. And if we could be of help to you, why not come? Well, together we stand and sing.